Gracious God, we give thanks for the many and abundant gifts of this day and for your mercies which are new to us every morning. We're grateful that you have called us into a good and abundance of life. And we pray, O oh God, that you would grant us the grace to receive the gifts that you offer us and that you would help our will to become one with your will so that we may know with increasing beauty and increasing fullness the goodness of the life for which you have created us. Grant us grace this semester as we share with one another, teach one another, and learn together how to enjoy this goodness for which you've created us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Come in, come in, plenty of seats down front, as usual. I have um, I have a pretty strong um, and deep-seated animosity is probably not too strong a term for uh, health and wealth gospel stuff. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because I think that it uh, does not take the New Testament very seriously and fails to understand that we live between the times of the now and the not yet and the fact that walking in the ways of the kingdom of God means a certain tension between the ways of the fallen world and God's kingdom. And so there's always a sort of tension and there's always a sort of reality that Christian discipleship entails some sort of suffering and a willingness to suffer. And early on in my, especially in my academic career, um, I did a lot of writing about that. And so a lot of my focus and my thinking was a lot, very much grounded in the, in the gospel accounts, was grounded in um, what does it mean, for example, to follow this nonviolent Jesus who calls us to a way of life that entails a willingness to suffer in profound, perhaps radical ways. And I still think that's all true. But somewhere along the way, I, um, I, for example, picked back up paying attention to people like Augustine and Aquinas, you know, some of the greatest thinkers in the church, 4th century, 12th century. And if you read Augustine, I'm reading Augustine's Confessions with one of my classes right now, and this week we were in the passage where he says, the whole point of life is to be happy. Now, he doesn't define that in a sort of indulgent, let me get a bigger boat and a bigger house and a bigger IRA way form of happiness. Because for him, happiness means friendship with God. Aquinas in the 12th century says exactly the same thing. Because the whole point of life is happiness. Happiness in which we have in this life a certain form of friendship with God that's very real and it's very tangible that leads to a certain kind of flourishing of life and a kind of friendship with God that we will know most fully in what he calls the beatific vision which he means the full contemplation of God's presence. It's of interest to me that Aquinas about nine months before he died 
I mean, if you're not familiar with Aquinas, I mean, he wrote a huge amount of stuff. He was an incredibly brilliant mind. Um, wrote, the, wrote, wrote about, I don't know, that many pages in a thing called the Summa Theologica, which is a, a whole summation of Christian theology. And um, nine months or so before he died, he had a vision, and he quit writing, and he never wrote another word. And he said, he's reported to have said, everything I have written is but straw in comparison to the vision that he had of friendship with God. So we have this sort of, um, this notion in Augustine and Aquinas that, yes, um, and they in no way dispute the notion that discipleship of Christ entails a certain willingness to suffer, but the willingness to suffer is... um, something that comes along with the pursuit of Christ, it is not the point of pursuit of Christ. See what see the difference between that? Because anytime we fall into the place of where we think the point of Christian discipleship is suffering, that's another word for masochism, not Christianity. Um, so, what does it mean then to live a life of a rightful <coughs> pursuit? I'm okay to use the word. Of happiness. What does it mean to do a rightful, faithful pursuit of a flourishing life without assuming we're becoming Joel Osteen fans? Um, What does it mean to live a life that's flourishing? So what we want to do in this class is we want to talk about that. That's our big question. That's our big structure. And, um, And moreover, we want to talk about it very practically and very pragmatically with um, we're going to make this a shared learning endeavor. So in other words, uh, everybody, including us, has homework for the week, but it's not written homework and it's not reading homework. It's neither one of those. It is living homework. And then you just observing your experiences and reporting to us the next week, this is what I experienced and this was what this was like for me. So first, let me, let me do a couple of uh, um, setting the stage kind of theologically and biblically. First, I want to talk about the notion of genre. You're, most of all of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the notion of genre. Uh, genre is key to biblical interpretation. So when we talk about genre, we say we're talking about what kind of literature is this? Is this poetry? Is this history? Is this um, some sort of uh, aphorism, proverb? Genre is crucial to rightly reading any text, right? So if you try to read the uh, your history textbook in the same way that you read your uh, poetry book, you're going <coughs> to screw one of them up. If you try to read um, the phone book the same way you read your um, what anything else, you're going to screw the phone book up, right? Um, I've not known many people to sit down and read encyclopedias. I did have one professor one time at Abilene Christian who sat down and read a whole encyclopedia. But generally, most normal people don't do that because you know what, what the genre is, right? So genre is crucial in thinking about biblical texts. What kind of genre is it? The Bible doesn't give us a discourse on genre. The Bible itself has no preface on how to read the Bible. There's no inspired introduction to the reader for the Bible. We just have the Bible with lots of different genres. The genre that we're going to be working with this term is what we call wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is a sort of uh, literature 
it's asking what does it mean to live a wise life? What does it mean to live a flourishing life? What does it mean to not be a fool? And it uses that language quite often of the wise man and the fool. Wisdom literature often has what we call a deuteronomistic view. Deuteronomistic view. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's a large section of chapters that says things like this. It says, if you love God and you serve God, blessed will you be in your house and blessed will you be in your field. Blessed will be the fruit of your womb and blessed will be the produce of your fields. Blessed will you be in the public square and blessed will you be in your household. And on and on and on and on. And then it says, but if you do not pursue God and you forsake God, then cursed will you be in your home and cursed will you be in the square. Cursed will be the fruit of your womb and cursed will be your fields. And on and on and with even more curses than blessings. This is what we call a deuteronomistic view that comes from the book of Deuteronomy. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Wisdom literature often takes this approach. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. You go remember Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who does not... Does not what? Sit in the council of the ungodly. It's walk. It's like walk, run, and sit, right? And blessed, if you do all this good stuff, you'll be like a tree planted by the streams of living water if you do the good stuff. And if you do the bad stuff, rotten things are going to happen to you. Over and over and over again, this is the way wisdom literature works. Do good, you get good. Do bad, you get bad. This very kind of forthright sort of approach. You can look at Proverbs 1, 10 to 19, 32 to 33. Same sort of thing. Um, now, one of the problems with this is that we know that life's not always that way. And moreover, we know that even the biblical wisdom literature knows life is not all that, always that way. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is that it is an argument with itself. And if you read the Bible without realizing the Bible argues with itself, you can really mess your up your readings of your Bible. <coughs> so you got the book of Proverbs, and then you got the book of Job. Job was a righteous man. No man had a right. But we'll look at all the crap that happened to Job, right? Job is wisdom literature that actually quotes some of the same ideas from the book of Proverbs in the friends who end up getting judged by God. So it's his argument with itself. Do good, you get good. Do bad, you get bad. Well, no, not always. Not always. But here's what I suggest to you. The wisdom literature is telling us how things often, maybe even normally, happen. These are the way things often happen in our observations about life. So you might think about it this way. Um, Newtonian physics. You know, for the, for the scientists in here, right? Newton's observations about the world work well, as I understand it, from the things that humans can generally observe. But when you get to really, really big, or really, really small, or really, really fast, you have to go to Einstein or quantum physics that argue with Newtonian views of the world and say, no, it doesn't always work that way. As a matter of fact, there's things that don't work that way at all. And I would suggest to you, you might think about the wisdom literature that way. It's like Newtonian physics. Generally speaking, this often happens this way, but not always. So remember, not always, but generally, you can learn some stuff from this. Um, even aphorisms require wisdom, say the proverb writer. You have to be wise in order to rightly interpret the aphorisms. Um, look at, um, we will try to use the Bible, <laughs> which is not always common for me in a Bible class, but 
<laughs> look, look at this one. This is a classic. Proverbs, 20, uh, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. That illustrates that wisdom literature assumes that for any of these wisdom sayings, you have to be wise to know how to put it into practice. As a matter of fact, before we read those, look at, look at um, 26.9. He says, Like a thorn bush brandished by the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Right? If you're a fool and you got some wise thing, you're just like a drunkard swinging around a thorn bush. You don't know what the heck you're doing, and it's not good for anybody. Just because you're saying something wise, if you're a fool, it doesn't matter if you're saying something wise, you'll screw it up. Right? So the assumption is, you have to be wise even to put the wisdom into practice. So, look at verse 4 and 5. Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself. So here it said, look, we all know this, right? Facebook comments. <laughs> here it is. Amen. It, it's just like, you know, that's what we ought to post on a lot of Facebook comments. Proverbs 26.4. Proverbs 26. Get, get us a Proverbs 26.4 meme that we're posting all the time. However, look at verse 5. Which contradicts verse 4. Verse 5 contradicts verse 4. Answer fools according to their folly. Or they will be wise in their own eyes. Well, thank you. That's very brilliant, Proverbs writer. You know, which one of these do you want me to do? Well, you have to be wise enough to figure it out. That's the whole point, right? Either we're being inducted into wisdom, and wisdom teaches us how to do this stuff. So, um, so the idea then is not some sort of consistent, theoretical, figure out. It's not rules. Not moral rules. It's descriptions of the way that possibly live a good life and you gotta you gotta grow up in wisdom to figure out how to do this stuff well. Um, so what we're gonna do is work through a lot of this kind of stuff uh, in this class. The three wisdom texts we're gonna work in from this course are the book of Proverbs, perhaps counterintuitively the Sermon on the Mount we're gonna consider as wisdom text. I'll talk about that in a second, and the and the book of James. So Proverbs, Sermon on the Mount, and the Book of James. A lot of times, um, Sermon on the Mount is complicated to use in this way. Uh, for one, because Matthew, for example, clearly sees Jesus as kind of the giver of the new... Jesus goes up on the mountain like Moses went up on the mountain. Jesus delivers the, the new law like Moses delivers the law. So he's clearly got his picture of law going on there, new law. And yet at the same time, you have these sort of wisdom emphases. So for example, the weak shall inherit the earth is from a Proverbs psalm, Psalm 37. Or you have Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount saying, what's the story? The wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. You do these things, you'll be wise. It's a wisdom literature text in the Sermon on the Mount. If you take them simple as kind of legalistic rules, sometimes you might kind of mess up. If you instead take these as life practices, which takes a lot of wisdom to learn how to do these things well, we have more freedom and more possibility about what we can do with these things. So Proverbs, Sermon on the Mount, Book of James. James obviously is very interested in wisdom throughout and a lot of the wisdom literature themes like the tongue, concern for the poor, and the practice of humility, and so forth. Here's going to be the structure of our course. Uh, we are going to, um, at, the, at the second half of each class period, 
we're going to introduce a sort of suggested practice for the week, one, maybe two, and, and suggest, why don't we all try this together this week? And uh, we'll keep it simple, straightforward, practical, uh, and so your only homework is, in, in a few encounters this week, I'm going to try this and see what happens. And then when we come back, the first half of the class period, we'll be hearing from you all. This is what I tried. This is what I did. This is what I learned. I messed up. I tried this and it messed me up. Goes this way, doing it this way, and so forth. It's a sort of shared learning experience of what we try doing some of these things. So with a very practical bent, just like the wisdom literature has. Again, a very practical bent. We try this kind of stuff. Um, comments, questions? Got about two minutes for comments or questions or thoughts. I was reminded in reading Proverbs 26, 4, and don't answer a fool according to his folly. In verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly. Um, when I was a church intern, this was the year before Lauren and I got married, uh, I was an intern under Walt Lever at Antioch Church of Christ. And uh, in a staff meeting one day, we were um, talking about some issue and doing some sort of thing. And whatever the initiative was, I raised the concern. I said something like, well, that seems inconsistent with what we said about doing such and so last month. And Bob Neal, anybody remember Bob Neal? One or two. He was a wonderful man. Um, at that time, probably in his 80s, still working you know, on church staff. And brother, brother Bob said, he quoted a poet. Somebody can help me know who the poet is. I think it's Wordsworth, maybe. He said, um, as so-and-so says, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. <laughs> you know, at the moment, I thought, what? Consistency is the mark of a brilliant mind. But what Proverbs is pointing us to is, it's not all about your head. Not all about my head. It's about learning to practice things in a wise way, whatever the context gives us, and try to do the best we can to be faithful in that context with all that's gone before us. Okay, um, let me do uh, two housekeeping things quickly. Um, one, I'm going to send around an email roster. If you'd like to uh, be on the email list for the class, please sign up. We'll send out an email probably once a week. Trust, try to remind you of what we're trying to work on this week and so forth. So that'll go around. Please make sure that gets all the way. Once it gets to the back, y'all make sure it comes around at this side, this way. Um, is anybody in here think you might be in here most weeks or would at least be willing in the short term to take attendance count and text it to Lori Netterville? I need some sort of volunteer. One volunteer. <laughs> I'm going to stop looking. Can someone tell me when someone raises your hand? There you go, over there, over there. Excellent, very good. Here's her number. Good just give her count. Excellent. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, how do we how do we play those things out there? Yeah. Um David? Where's your class gonna be held next week? <laughs> this is it. We're not going to the cove, I know that. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. I'm uh, delighted to get to teach with Laura this term. 
to do an, oh, we'll do announcements, yes. Oh, the announcements are on that sheet. Announcements quickly. Uh, Tuesday morning ladies Bible class starts this Tuesday, September 12 at 9.30 a.m. in the gathering room. First meeting will include a brunch. So please bring something to share. Sandra Collins will be teaching from the Gospel of John this fall. Child care is available, but all children must be pre-registered through OC registrations. <laughs> Family prayer concerns for this week. Uh, Jim Hutchison husband of Glenda. They haven't been at Otter Creek very long. I'm sure some of you know them. Was diagnosed September 1 with leukemia. He's in Sarah Cannon. will be there for four weeks. And uh, John Rowe's father, John Rowe, also passed away unexpectedly on September 8th. Arrangements are incomplete at this time. Prayers are appreciated for John's mother, Shirley, and the rest of the Rowe family. And, of course, plenty of others here at Otter Creek that are fighting cancer and struggling with various illnesses. So let's pray and then uh, more will come. Gracious God, we give uh, up to you these uh, prayers for Jim Hutchison and John Rhodes' family in the passing of John. Pray your blessings upon them, healing for Jim. Uh, we pray especially for uh, Catherine Broadway. And we pray for the many friends here in this place, in this space, that uh, are hurting, who are ill, and who need your grace. We pray especially for all those suffering under the affliction of the hurricane and hurricanes. And we pray that you will continue to send a spirit of generosity and hospitality uh, that needs might be met with open arms. We pray for uh, peace in our land. And we pray that your people may be people of peace. Uh, we pray for the sorts of uh, horrors exhibited in places like Charlottesville. Uh, we pray for peace and wisdom um, in the situation with North Korea. And we pray in so many of these cases and <coughs> spaces you will grant grace. We pray especially for all of the students in Nashville and around the country dealing with the uh, uh, ruling that uh, came from the Washington this week and their fear, and we pray again for grace and for mercy and for justice. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So I'm grateful to get to uh, teach with Laura. It's our first time. We've talked together before, but teenagers, I think, maybe, but never gotten to co-teach here, so I'm grateful to get to teach together. So welcome. My lovely wife, Laura. outside of my comfort zone um, I am accustomed to sitting and hearing him teach and speak um, this is way outside my comfort zone for my work I have to do this some it is outside of my comfort zone there as well but it is a smaller group <laughs> and I'm in charge so I do it and they are very polite about it. So I know that you'll be polite to me, but I seriously ask that you be patient with me as I try to lean into this role. I think that I, I, will, I will get more comfortable um, in the coming weeks. 
Um, so don't be too discouraged. If my voice starts shaking or it sounds like I'm about to burst into tears, <laughs> I just Brad and Sally Reed go to church here, but I don't see them in this room. Brad um, is, he may be teaching at Lipscomb now, I don't know. And Sally is, I know, teaching at Lipscomb, but they used to teach at ACU and Lee and I both did graduate work there. And Dr. Reed taught a class that I was in, and it just so happened I was the only female and a bunch of guys. And I had to do a presentation, and it was early on in the program. And throughout the presentation, it was just something on, it, he teaches business law, so it was something on business law. It wasn't anything moral or anything that made me feel vulnerable at all. But I sounded like I was delivering a eulogy. <laughs> my best, best, best friend. The whole time I spoke, my voice just shook. And I knew, you know, I could feel the water in my eyes. And when I sat down, the guy beside me said, why did you sound like that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so um, thank you for being patient with me. Okay, so Lee has set us up well. We're going to be looking at wisdom literature. And um, I'll be honest, the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount both mean a lot to me. And I um, love both of those books. And as a result, I've spent a lot of time um, in both of those texts. And I feel a sense of ownership that I probably shouldn't feel because I've spent a lot, of times in, a lot of time in James and in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so when we were discussing about, well, what practice do we want to lead with? What practice do we want to talk about first? It, even before we opened our Bibles, I thought, oh my goodness, where would we start? Because there's so many helpful practices in there that we could pick and choose. I feel like I'm just picking at random. Um, so I spent some time in both of them yesterday, more time than normal, and realized that one practice that comes up again and again and again and again and that may possibly be the overarching um, the overarching practice is that of humility and so what I want to do is give you a few things to maybe think about and practice this week so that you can incorporate um, deliberate attempts to practice humility in your week and even in, within that realm, there are so many ways you can practice humility. Um, and sometimes practicing humility is counterintuitive. Um, sometimes humility, I'm, I'm one of those people who I think I can figure people out real quickly and easily. And um, for, sometimes maybe I have a small point, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm way off base. Lee is always reminding me that I cannot read people's minds. And I know that I can. He's absolutely right. But one thing I just hate is when I can spot someone being falsely humble. Um, it, when I see it, it is usually typified by um, um, self-deprecation. Um, excessive self-deprecation, flattery of others, excessive praise of others. Um, and all of that is very off-putting to me. And when I say that I want to challenge us to look for ways to incorporate humility into our day-to-day -day lives this week, I am not talking about that. But even more than that, I think that sometimes humility requires that we do things that don't look very humble. 
um, like get up and teach a Sunday school class. Um, sometimes um, if you don't lead, if you're not a CEO, I am not a CEO. But I have to step in for my CEO sometimes, my boss, to do things that he would do. I have to do those things in his absence. And I realize that when I have to do those things, I realize how much humility it requires to be a good leader. And I realize how lonely it is. And I realize that um, that person actually gets a lot less uh, feedback than I need to know I did okay. Because maybe people assume, well, they're, they're the boss. They know and, and they don't need me to say anything. They don't need me to validate or compliment anything they just said or did. And I realize, wow. Being a leader requires a great deal of humility. Um, so it is mysterious, just like the psalm that Lee pointed out. It takes some wisdom to incorporate true, authentic humility into your day-to-day -day life. Um, so I mentioned some things I don't like. Self-deprecation, flattery, <coughs> excessive praise, um, killing yourself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that's very humble. In fact, I would say that that's the opposite of humility. When you kill yourself for the PTO or your job or your household or even church, um, if you're not taking care of yourself, I say that that's actually um, very proud of you. Um, that if you don't recognize that you're a human being just like your own niece or nephew or eight-year-old who needs good rest and downtime and time in nature and time to play and healthy food, I would say, yeah, that, that's pretty um, opposite of humble to uh, think you have to kill yourself or everything's going to fall apart at work or at school or at home. Um, so I am not talking about any of those ways to be humble. What I am talking about and what I uh, want to talk about this morning is um, I think that humility, that, that there are two, this is just me, that there are two um, things at the root of humility. One is acceptance of and awareness of reality. Accept, acceptance of and awareness of reality. And by that I mean, I am aware that I am the created. I am aware of my mortality. I am aware that the success or failure of my child's high school career does not depend on me. I'm aware that um, I can do all the right things and it still not turn out the way it was supposed to have turned out or I can do all the wrong things and it may turn out great. I am aware of these things and I accept it. I accept that I'm mortal. I accept that, I accept the Psalm 103 that reminds me that I'm like a grass that flourishes in the sun. And when the wind blows over it, its place remembers it no more. I accept that reality. And that's, that's part of practicing humility. And then two, I think that humility is the wisdom of heaven. And I think especially of the verse in James, and I should start bringing my readers to this class, um, but I, 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 like, I like this verse. Who is wise and understanding among you? 
Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Humility comes from wisdom. Wisdom um, begins with humility. Okay, so here are your practical steps for this week. I want you to practice... And again, I could have chosen so many different things from these texts. I want you to practice being quick to listen and slow to speak. Um, first, I would like to, um, I think we're all probably familiar also with this text. Um, in arguments, I know that um, Lee and I have been married 27 years almost in October. Um, we have gone through spells where we argue quite a lot in those 27 years. Um, I know that if I am quick to speak, all hell can break loose. <laughs> um, I know that, and that is reaffirmed here in James. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Um, so it, ha it will help you in when you are tempted to argue, whether it's with someone you love or someone you barely know. Um, yesterday I was at Home Depot. I don't know how many of you run errands to Home Depot on Saturdays. But this was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I pulled into a parking spot and I opened the car door and I could hear someone just laying on their horn. And I thought, what has happened? And I, at first I thought, did I do something? And I realized no one was around me. Um, I thought, oh dear, did someone like have a heart attack and fall on their horn? So I see two cars, it's the next aisle over, I walk over there, and I'm thinking, somebody's got to be lying between these two cars. <laughs> and someone else has watched someone get hit by these two cars, and they have had a heart attack in response, and that is why <laughs> going on. That is the only logical explanation for this ruckus. Well, it was two cars. They both had their blinker on to turn into the same parking lot, the parking spot, and neither of them would budge. <laughs> and so... I saw it, but I thought, that can't be right. I <laughs> and so I start walking in, and there are two elderly men walking in ahead of me, and I hear one of them saying to the other, they both wanted the same spark parking spot. And I ran up to them, and I said, you're kidding. Are, is that what they're fighting about, a parking place? Yes, that is what they're fighting about. Well, I went on into the store, and then I realized when I got in the store, I didn't bring my list. Let me go back outside. Well, I don't know how much time passed. A minute or two, I went back outside. The horns are still going. <laughs> and there were two different men coming into Home Depot. And they were saying, 
did someone have a heart attack? <laughs> and I said, no, let me tell you what's going on. <laughs> it was the funniest thing. But if either of those two drivers had practiced just an ounce of humility yesterday and handed over the parking spot to the other driver, look at what would have, look, look at, that's a silly example, um, but I can see it in my life on a daily basis. I am an argumentative person, and the more I prioritize listening over speaking, the better things go. Um, but even in prayer, um, Matthew 6, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, um, all throughout Matthew 6, Jesus is telling us um, to give in secret because it only matters what God sees. Um, he, then he goes on to tell us to pray in secret and shut your door. And I, I like all of that. And, and all of that summons up humility. Um, giving so as not to be honored by others. Praying so as not to be perceived in a certain way by others. But what I really like is that Jesus says, don't keep on babbling like pagans when you pray. They think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Um, I realize that it is hard for me to pray. It may or may not be hard for you to pray. I have a hard time praying. And my whole life, I've wanted to be a prayer warrior, but it does not come naturally to me. Um, I would say that my aunt is a prayer warrior, but I am not. I'm not that good at it. And I'm not very good at leading out loud prayers. Um, I'm very self-conscious about it. And I have found that, when I, when I started studying this text years ago, I realized <coughs> maybe I don't have to say that much in my prayer. Maybe I can focus less on what I'm going to say and focus more on just saying, you know, the person or the situation um, that is that I'm bringing before God, and that's it. Because God knows what I need better than I know what to ask. So sometimes with my children, I might pray for them for 10 or 15 minutes. Probably not that long. I'm probably done now. Um, <laughs> But I try to do it every day. It, it's several <laughs> minutes. It's not 10 or 15 minutes. And sometimes I just write their names on my hands. And I just lift up my hands and try to practice mindfulness. And try to listen to the traffic or the birds or the HVAC that's clicking on and off. And I know, God... I'm here, I'm present, I'm fully present, and I don't know what to pray for my children. But I don't have to come up with words to lift them up. I am lifting them up to you, and you know better than I do what they need. So there too, I challenge you to listen before you speak, even in your prayers. So when you're tempted to argue with someone in your prayers, maybe read uh, this portion of Matthew 6 to help you remember that and help you take comfort in that, that that is praying. 
Um, and then finally, just even in casual conversation, I don't know if you're like me, um, but when you're telling me an interesting story or a funny story, if you're telling me about your wildly stressful delivery, you've delivered a baby and you've got this fantastic stressful story where everything went wrong, but everything turned out okay. Half the time you're telling me that story, I am thinking of my story that I can tell you. And if mine's a little more heroin than yours and a little more dramatic than yours and a little funnier than yours, all the better. <laughs> because even though I love your story, I'm missing your story. I'm missing some of it because I'm trying to think of my story to share with you. <coughs> so I challenge you just to listen to other people's stories and don't follow up with your own even if you have something more interesting to share. Just listen to their story. And you may be surprised that you're giving space for people to talk that you had been taking up before. I know I do that and I don't realize it until I deliberately practice. I've been talking too much. I think I'm going to keep my mouth shut today in this relationship and let her do the talking. And I just leave that space and we see what happens. Um, so that's what I challenge you to do this week. I hope this wasn't too confusing. but. Listen more, speak less. <laughs> I thought of a really funny harrowing story. <laughs> um, thank you, Laura. That's great. Um, yeah, so try these things this week and uh, see what happens. Um, and since we do have two minutes, I am going to tell the story I have to tell. Um, one time, uh, years ago, our, our, our family has, uh, last count, done 15 ER trips with three boys. And um, our youngest, we, we've actually been to the most remote emergency room on the face of the planet, in East, even in Easter Island, for example, with one of our boys. And uh, so years ago, I was fussing at the dinner table. I said, boys, you got to stop, stop. We can't afford the ER payments. Quit. <laughs> Stop being so stupid. And uh, a little while later, one night, I was uh, with Ben at the time was maybe eight or ten, I don't know, and he's our youngest. And uh, as I was putting him to bed, I said, Ben, slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. I said, that anger is going to get you. I said, you hear me? Yes, sir. 24 hours later, I walk up into Chandler's room, and Chandler is taunting Ben. Ben's standing on Chandler's bed, and I, I walk in and I see his fist ball up like this, and I know here it comes. And I say, Ben, Ben, stop, Ben! And he takes off running off the bed, and Chandler's standing at the wall, and he goes to pummel, try to pummel Chandler, and Chandler steps out of the way. and. Not only is there a wall there, but on the floor there is a Galileo thermometer, the glass cylinders that have a point at the top with little floating balls in them. Ben's foot comes right down on top of the Galileo thermometer, his heel, and he immediately hits in the floor in a ball, just wailing. And so I run to him and I grab him and his foot is just split wide open. 
and I start hollering, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go. <laughs> bring me a towel, bring me a towel. And so I get a bath towel and Lauren and I jump in the car and I'm holding him in the back seat, you know. And we get down on 12th and Wedgwood going to Vanderbilt, which to show you how much we've been there, the previous time we had been there, when I walked in one night with, uh, with Ben, the ER doc on duty on a Friday night walked in and she said, Oh, hi, how are Chandler and David doing? <laughs> so we're at, we're at 12th and Wedgwood about to get to Vanderbilt and Ben starts just sobbing. He said, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I said, Ben, it's okay, you're going to be okay. He said, I'm sorry. I said, you don't have to apologize. He said, I'll pay the deductible. <laughs> Blessings on you all. Have a good week. Did the email list get up, sign up, get around? Working. We'll get more next week.